children here between uh, ages kindergarten and second grade to be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. With the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19, as we continue our study in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, where we've been studying for the past several months, working our way through it steadily. Isaiah 19. By the way, last week I mentioned uh, in the sermon uh, Terry Tupper and her surgery. I thought some of you might be interested to know she came through it with flying colors. The doctors were amazed at how things went and they got the whole uh, malformation out of her, her brain and she's, she has full movement, she has full memory. So, you know, God rules. So that's great. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, Isaiah chapter 19, verses, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 25 this morning. It's on page 693, if you're using a pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 19, page 693. It says, in that day, Isaiah 19, 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender, and He will rescue them. So the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and He will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be a third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. I had this uh, friend in high school... Actually, he's probably my best friend. Uh, we were good buddies for several years in high school. He was a great guy, very athletic, a very intelligent, a very funny person. I, I remember, you know, we just get each, each other laughing all the time. I, I have very uh, frequent memories of us driving in his truck down the highway and us laughing so hard because we just got each other going that, you know, we, we couldn't see, you know, tears coming down our eyes and swerving all over the road. And, you know, j- just a very fun person. Uh, this friend of mine uh, came to church with me, and he, did, he and I did the youth group thing together for a couple years, did the youth camps and the youth retreats and the, you know, the whole youth group sort of scene. Uh, and, and it was a, a great time and, and a great friend. But then, some, I forget when exactly, but somewhere during his senior year of high school, he came back to school on Monday morning, and it's as if a whole switch had just been flipped, and he was a completely different person. I, you know, I, what I remember is coming to my first class that morning and him in the back of the room with a bunch of sort of the party crew going, man, you were wild last night. Man, that was, whoa, i never seen that side of you. And it was like from that time on, he was just gone. And we hardly talked anymore and he took the whole sort of party drinking scene and, and really didn't change from there. You know, you try to figure out what makes a person flip-flop like that. He had a, a pretty difficult home life. Even though he was this really gifted person, he had... Uh, pretty toxic kind of atmosphere at home, but 
So, you know, maybe it's that. I mean, it's tough to say. You know, you try to psychoanalyze people and figure out what happens and why they did this and that. It's tough to know. But anyway, uh, that trajectory that he changed to really didn't uh, subside. When he went to college, it was drinking and drugs, and he sort of shifted into the whole Eastern religion, uh, New Age kind of, uh, you know, mumbo-jumbo. I was talking to him on the phone about a year ago, just catching up, and, and he was just going on and on about his religious views. And you know, all this Eastern stuff, you know, saying, Jeremy, you know, God is each of us. We are God, and you are God. And, you know, Jesus was unique because he discovered the divinity within him. But it didn't have to be Jesus of Nazareth. It could have been Harry of Toledo, you know. It could have been anybody. And, you know, just like, dude, you're not God. <laughs> I mean, in case you guys are kind of fuzzy on that, you're not God. Okay. If there's one thing we know from human history, it's that we are not God. God is not within us. If you look within, what the Bible says you'll find is sin. Uh, God is the creator. We are the creation. And there is an, an unalterable gap between the two. Is God very active in this world? Yes. Is God everywhere by his spirit? Yes. But we're not God. But anyway, um, I'm preaching now. So, uh, so he was, um, this friend of mine, he just, he's gotten in all that weird stuff. And, and my mom, actually, this week I was talking to my mom on the phone and she had just talked to his mom. She said, oh, how is he? And his mom said, I've just washed my hands of him. He said, he's just a drug addict living in a trailer, you know, doing odd jobs just to make a little money to sort of support his lifestyle or whatever you'd call it. And, you know, do you have a friend like that in your life? And I'm going to tell you the guy's name, but I'll just call him Dan. Do you have a guy like Dan in your life? Uh, Maybe a sibling or a friend, some kid that you tried to raise the right way and they're like, over here and the whole family's over here and they went that way and you're like, what? You know, wh- why'd that happen? Maybe you have an ex-spouse someone you used to be married to and it's like, man, wh- where did they go? Why are they going that direction? And uh, I wish I could say, I wish I could stand up here and say, I have prayed faithfully for Dan every day since high school. Yeah, I haven't. I've prayed for him sometimes. But honestly, if, if I were to really be real honest, there's a part of me that just wishes I could wash my hands of him too and just say, you know, forget it. But there's one thing that keeps me hopeful. There's one thing that keeps a, a candle of, of hope and a gleam of light in my heart. And that one thing is that I know that God can do anything. The one thing that keeps me hopeful is that I believe and know from Scripture and from my own life, just looking at myself, that God can save anyone. I know that God's grace and God's mercy, all the stuff we've been singing about, all His love and His grace, we know it's so powerful that it can reach into the darkest, slimiest pit of sin and rebellion and self-destruction, and He can reach in and save anybody and pull them out, cleanse them, and make them into a new person. And so it's because of what I believe about who God is, not who Dan is or who I am, but who God is, I know that I have to keep praying for him. And so it's a struggle. I I would like to give up, but I know that God can. And so in order to glorify God, I just try to keep praying for that guy. Well, today we come to a passage in the book of Isaiah as we continue our steady march through this fascinating Old Testament book. It's a passage demonstrating the power of God to do anything. It's a passage about the salvation of all people, the Egyptians. The Egyptians, the the eternal enemies of God's people, are someday going to belong to God's people. Uh, Look at verses 19 to 22 again. It says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. 
when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors. He will send them a savior and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They'll make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. This is one of the most, I think, amazing, breathtakingly surprising passages in the whole Old Testament. Because uh, everywhere in the Old Testament, uh, Egypt is the bad guy. This is the, the archetypal enemy of Israel. When, when Israel wants to talk about the bad, oppressive people, they go, you know, like the Egyptians. And, and that's who they always go to. Because, of course, the Egyptians is where the Israelites were in bondage. Uh, uh, they were there in Egypt. They were in the house of slavery. Moses led them out of Egypt. And even in the book of Isaiah, when you do a study of how Egypt is represented in Isaiah, they're typically um, sort of a, an analogy for how bad Assyria is. Like Assyria is really bad, you know, like the Egyptians. And Assyria is going to put us in bondage like the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are the perennial bad guys. In fact, if you look at ver- chapter 19, the broader context, up to verse 15, chapter 19, verses 1 to 15, is all a big nasty judgment oracle against the Egyptians. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let's just read the first few verses and, and just get this theme of judgment. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him. The hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother. Neighbor against neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And this is the typical thing you think of when you think of Egypt in the Old Testament. Idolatrous, they worship you know, Ra, the sun god, and Pharaoh is a god, and they worship this whole pantheon of deities, and uh, they reject God's ways. And so this is, you know, the typical kind of thing. Probably when Isaiah was reading or speaking these first four verses, your typical Israelite is going, yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, go on, Isaiah, yeah. You know, keep home. Yeah, they're going to get whooped. Yeah, the cruel taskmaster, all right. Yeah, you know, oh, I love all this bad news about Egypt. Because Egypt is the bad guy. And so that's why when you hit verse 19, you know, if, if you're sort of just soaked in that context, your jaw should just hit the floor because there's this radical change in how God begins talking about Egypt. Something that I... It's difficult to find anywhere else in the Old Testament something this dramatic in terms of God's change in perspective. In verses 19 to 22, if I could just sum it up before we go through it, basically God is saying, I'm going to treat Egypt just like I treat my people Israel. In fact, the way he describes Egypt in verses 19 to 22 is with language, promises, pictures that all apply to Israel in the Old Testament. Except now he's applying them, you know, take out Israel, put in Egypt. It's just like, what? Where is this coming from? Look at verse 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. They're going to worship the Lord. There's going to be an altar there. There's going to be a monument at the border. Now the monument... That's not like one of those signs, you know, like, you know, welcome entering Egypt or, you know, <laughs> Pharaoh welcomes you or something. It's, it's not like that. The, the monument is, what that word is, is, is a covenant pillar. 
You know, in the Old Testament, you know, some of these stories like Jacob, God would appear to him and make a promise, and Jacob would make a promise. And then in order to mark the covenant that he made with God, he'd get a big old rock and he'd put it up. And that would be a, a pillar. And so whenever he'd walk back there, he'd be like, this is the place where God and I made a covenant with each other and made promises to each other. So that's what it's talking about. It's not just some random obelisk or, or monument. It's a covenant marker. In other words, Egypt is going to be the covenant people of God. What? This is astounding. Verse 20. It will be a sign and a witness, more covenant language there, to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, He will send them a Savior and a Defender, and He will rescue them. I mean, you know, how ironic is that? Egypt, the perennial oppressor, gets delivered from the oppressors. God's going to... Don't worry, Egypt. I'm going to send you a Moses. I'm going to send you a deliverer, Egypt. He's going to rescue you. Like, it, it's just so topsy-turvy. Verse 21. So the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. I, I'm not really happy with the translation of that Hebrew word there. It, it's literally, in that day they will know the Lord. Again, this is a... This is covenant language. Knowing God. It's, it's not just like, you know, someday they'll know that Israel worships this God named Yahweh. But what it's saying is someday they will know God personally. They will know God in an intimate, committed relationship the way Israel knew God in an intimate, committed covenant relationship. And then verse 22. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. Well, that sounds a little negative. But then here's the rest. He will strike them and heal them. God strikes and heals His children, His beloved he doesn't strike and heal his enemies. He just strikes. But his children, he disciplines. He strikes them, then he heals them. This healing language is, again, language that's only applied to Israel. So, I, I know this is all kind of uh, historical. It's a little bit removed from our context today. But, but I, what I'm trying to paint a picture of is just how astounding this language is. That God would move from Egypt, the evil enemy, the crocodile in the Nile who wants to gobble up the, Egyptian, the Israelites, to Egypt, my beloved people. This is amazing. It would be kind of like if there was a prophecy that said, in that day, Osama bin Laden will be an American citizen and will win the Congressional Medal of Honor for Patriotism. You know, we'd be like, what? what? Oh, that's ridiculous. You know, in that day, Michael Moore will campaign for George W. Bush. <laughs> in that day, Rush Limbaugh will stump for John Kerry. Like, what? It just doesn't happen. I mean, that... These are the enemies. They don't do that. And, and suddenly God is saying it's going to all change. God can do anything. He can save anyone. God can reach into the darkest, slimiest pit that we can dig for ourselves. He can take the eternal enemy, Egypt, and make them into a beloved son. That's what God's grace can do. In fact, as if that wasn't amazing enough, it goes up another notch in verses 23 to 25. It just gets even more astounding. God just cranks it up. Look at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be a third, will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. So not only is Egypt getting thrown in among the people of God, but Assyria. Now, if you've been studying uh, Isaiah with us over the past couple months, Assyria, they are the current evil bad guy. Egypt, Egypt was the ancient foe. Assyria is the current foe in Isaiah's day. Throughout Isaiah's ministry, Assyria was constantly pounding 
Palestine and constantly making invasions and capturing more and more land. They were the constant looming evil threat that was terrifying the Israelites. And now God's saying, yeah, yeah, the Assyrians, they're going to be my people too. I can just imagine the Israelites hearing this like, okay, I've heard everything. Sorry, Isaiah. You know, you've pushed me past the point of credulity, Isaiah. You can't mean the Assyrians too. Oh, yeah. Verse 23. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, he's not talking literally here. This is a figurative highway because the fact is, in Isaiah's day, there was a literal highway. There were roads that connected Egypt. They would go from Egypt up through Palestine and then over uh, to Assyria in what would be today like northern Iraq. That's where Assyria was. There there were roads. So, yeah, there are already highways. The point of saying there will be a highway is saying that they're going to be connected to each other. They're going to be in relationship There's going to be open travel between the two. The phone lines of communication will be open. They'll be together a unified people. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Syria. Verse 24, In that day Israel will be a third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the whole earth. And here's where I think, too, that that Egypt and Assyria aren't the only countries in view. I, I think this is really about the whole world. And Egypt and Assyria are being chosen as kind of symbols of the ultimate heathen nations. And it's like, you know, Egypt, Assyria, he could have thrown in other countries, you know, Philistia and um, the Hittites. I mean, he, he could have picked all kinds of nations. But, but he just picked two that the Israelites knew that were the, the ultimate examples of evil, evil oppression. Because it's going to be a blessing on the earth. In other words, God in this future period, whenever this happens, is going to reach out and include for himself people from all the nations in the world. And let me be clear, not every single person on the face of the earth, but people from among all the nations. So people from the Egyptians and people from the Assyrians and all the different peoples of the earth. And then in verse 25, here's the crescendo. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. Israel, my inheritance. My people, my handiwork, my inheritance. Those words are exclusively words and titles for Israel. And now they're being applied to the Egyptians and the Assyrians. This is such an amazing passage. And it just illustrates that God can do anything. That when God decides to save, it doesn't matter how far away you are from Him, it doesn't matter how far you've gone and what kind of a mess you've gotten yourself into, God's arm can reach out and pluck anybody for Himself. Nobody is beyond the grace and mercy of God when God decides to act. Nobody. Nobody is. So uh, when does this prophecy come true? How does this prophecy come true? Obviously, Isaiah is looking down the timeline. He keeps saying, in that day. There's sort of a little mantra in here, in that day, in that day. So when is that day? And as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, what we find is that day is when Jesus Christ comes and establishes his church. The coming of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and the establishment of the Jew-Gentile church is how God is implementing this prophecy. And what I'd like you to do is look in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, our old friend. It's on page 1157. Ephesians chapter 2. This is just so cool how this all comes together here in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is Paul writing to the uh, Christians in Asia Minor who are mostly Gentiles. They're mostly Gentiles. They're mostly Assyrians, Egyptian, you know, in other words, heathen pagans out there. 
says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and I'd say that probably applies to most of us here. Uh, I'm, I'm a Gentile by birth. All my you know, relatives and my spiritual roots are sort of the pagan, heathen, Germanic tribes of northern Europe and uh, you know, the Norwegian Vikings and all those. Uh, you know, I come from good pagan stock, uh, and I'm sure uh, most of you do too, heathen, heathen idolaters. Uh, most of us here come from those back. Maybe there's a few of you here who grew up Jewish, but probably most of us weren't. So this, this uh, kind of speaks to the majority of us here. You who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Verse 12, remember that at that time, before Jesus, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So through Jesus' death on the cross, God is now bringing in people from all the nations of the earth to himself. Before the coming of Jesus Christ, God worked through Israel. After the coming of Jesus Christ, it's now through the preaching of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. There's this dramatic shift that takes place with Christ. It's what theologians call the shift of redemptive history. The, the history of God's plan of redemption with Christ is like turns a huge page and it moves into a, another gear where now God is taking his gospel to the whole nations. Uh, verse 14, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Who has made the two one. He's made Jew and Gentile one. God has one people. God does not have two people. It's not Israel and the church. There's one people, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. There's one people in Christ. That God's only always had one people. And now those people are defined, not ethnically, but Christologically. To be the people of God isn't an ethnic distinction anymore like it was in the Old Testament. Today, to be the people of God is defined as being in Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you're now included among the people of God, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a heathen mutt from, you know, northern Europe, like my ancestors, my ancestry. God can include you into Christ. He abolished, verse 15, in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I was trying to think of an analogy of this great shift that's taken place. It was prophesied in Isaiah, come to fruition in Christ. I was thinking of an analogy. Think of a huge dam big dam, behind it a huge reservoir. Uh, I grew up out west in Las Vegas, as, as some of you know, and out there is Hoover Dam. I don't know if you've ever seen Hoover Dam. Huge dam. It's in the movie Superman. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and it's a claim to fame. Behind it is Lake Mead. Lake Mead is uh, the largest man-made reservoir in the United States. It's fed by the Colorado River as it comes out of the uh, Grand Canyon. And there's this huge lake there. And then beyond that, the Colorado goes down uh, on its uh, way. And, and the water from this reservoir continues on, through, not by going over the top of the dam, but by going through tunnels underneath the dam. So, uh, you know, if you want to get to the water from the reservoir on the other side of the dam, you have to go down these little tunnels where it's coming underneath the dam. And that's kind of how it was before the coming of Christ. God's salvation and mercy came out through little pipes. It's called Israel. And if you were a, a, a pagan and you wanted to know who the true God was and you wanted to hear his revelation and you wanted to find out about him, you'd have to go down to Israel and find one of their prophets or get a copy of the, the law or something like that. It's just a little pipe. But with the coming of Christ, it's like the dam got blown open. And instead of a little pipe in Israel, there's now this 
this tidal wave of water that's washing over the nations. And now the gospel is going out. You don't have to go to a geographic place to find the gospel. God's gospel is going out to the world through the preaching of the gospel through his church, through you know, Seth and Bob going to Central Asia. That's how the, the gospel is moving. In fact, if, if you look in the Bible in the book of Acts, you know what the book of Acts is? It's the story of when the dam first broke. That's the book of Acts. That's my one summer. It's the story when the dam first broke. Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Boom! The dam breaks, and now the gospel starts to flow. First it fills up Jerusalem, but there's too much water to hold it there. Then it goes to Judea and Samaria, but there's too much water to hold it there. So then God gets the Apostle Paul, knocks him down, brings him over, says, you're going to work for me. The Apostle Paul, the gospel goes to Asia. The gospel goes to Rome. And you know what? The tidal wave is still going. The tidal wave that began in the book of Acts has never abated since then. In fact, it's only gotten bigger. Uh, the, the number of people coming to Christ today, the number of churches being planted in the world, has grown exponentially as a proportion of world population since the day it first started. So, you know, it, it's kind of physically impossible in, the, in our world, but in the spiritual world, the, the volume is increasing. The water is getting bigger. The wave is rising around the world. And, you know, sometimes we don't see it here in New England. We labor away here in New England, and there's not a lot of evangelical Christianity. It's kind of at a low ebb here, and we're laboring away. But I'll tell you, some other places around the world, it is exploding. Latin America, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, the church is just like, it's like a brush fire. It's out of control. The wave is still moving. God is still working. And that wave will continue as God wins a people for himself from all the peoples of the earth until when Christ returns. And then God's work will be complete. And so God's plan is moving forward. Uh, do you remember a couple weeks ago we had this missionary here, um, Craig Soderberg? He, he preached here. and uh, he, he works in Southeast Asia uh, among a people he calls the Ibwe people. Uh, there's about 5 million Ibwe people in Southeast Asia. They're a people group with a distinct culture and language. They're 99.9999999% Muslim. There are, I think among the 5 million, we only know of 15 followers of Christ among them. 15. There's no church. If you're an Ibwe person, there's no, there's no South Shore Baptist or other church you could walk into and hear the, the gospel taught. Uh, there's no Bible in their language. That's what Craig is doing. He's trying to translate the Bible into the Ibwe language. And you look at that and you think, man, that's hopeless. You know, why waste resources on that? You know, that's like beating your head against a wall. You know, why don't we just wash our hands and say, oh, the Ibwe, woo, they're lost. I mean, they're as entrenched and as far from the gospel of Christ as anyone can be. But God's wave is still flowing, and God can save anyone. Uh, Craig was telling us the story. I think it was within the last year. They were translating the Jesus film into Ibwe, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Jesus film. The, basically a film of Jesus' life that they show around the world and, and put in different languages so that people who maybe can't even read can see the film and hear the, see the gospel message. And uh, so they're translating it, and they needed some native Ibwe speakers to test the translation and make sure that you know, they weren't saying really funny things that everyone would laugh at. So, you know, they're, they're like, hey, you know, you watch this. So they got this lady and had her check out some portions of the translation. She's like, huh, what's that? And, you know, she started asking questions. She came to faith in Christ. So now I guess there's 16 Ibwe people, <laughs> apparently. And, you know, that's just a little foretaste of what God is going to do. There will be an altar among the Ibwe. There will be a monument stone at their boundary. 
they, God will uh, reveal Himself to them and they will acknowledge Him. They will worship Him. They will make their vows and keep them. God will say, Ibwe my people, Ibwe my inheritance, Ibwe my handiwork. And it's that confidence that we have that we send out missionaries to places that it seems impossible to reach. Not because we have some technique or sales pitch, but we believe that God can do anything. And we believe that God is determined to save a people for Himself from every people on the earth. And so with that faith, we just send guys out to places that seem rock hard and can't be penetrated. That's why I have hope here in New England. God can do anything. That's why I love being here. I'm just waiting for it. Every day, it's like looking out my windows, like, is the revival here yet? You know? <laughs> no? All right, pray some more. Is it here? You know? I'm, I'm waiting for it. I'm praying for it. It's been here before. God can do it again. And it's like a tidal wave when revival hits and people just repent and come to Christ and throw away all their, you know, I'm too smart for God and, you know, I'm too sophisticated and, you know, all oh, that baloney. You know, when God shows up, all that baloney just goes out the window. People fall on their faces. They repent and they say, Jesus Christ, you are the Lord. They put their faith in him. It's happened in our country before. And God can do it again. Because when God decides to move, nothing can stop him. Any more than you could stand at the foot of that dam when it breaks and, you know, you couldn't. When God moves, God moves. So, I could go on and on. Let me just move to application really quick. This passage is so rich, I just feel like we've skimmed the surface of it. But let me just give you three ideas for application. Uh, Things you can put into practice tomorrow, we can put into practice Monday morning. Uh, One application is for our whole church. I think one of the takeaways from Isaiah 19 is that we have to stay committed to foreign missions as a church. We must always keep global evangelization at the top of our list. Because that's how God is accomplishing Isaiah 19. It's through the, the faithfulness of the church around the world. And in fact, to be a church, you have to have a vision for outreach with the gospel of Christ. When a church no longer has a vision for taking Christ and evangelizing its community in the world, it really ceases to be a biblically functioning church. You look at the book of Acts. That was, you know, why was the Holy Spirit sent to the church? Number one reason, to empower evangelism. It wasn't to give me some private, personal, you know, happy feeling. It was to spread the gospel. That was the number one reason in the book of Acts, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's, as a church, just stay committed to world evangelization. And uh, maybe some of you are new to this whole idea. You came from church backgrounds so it really wasn't done. I just want to say, just, just get involved with it. Just learn a little bit more. And, and once you get a taste for it, oh, it's so good. There's nothing more exciting than getting in touch with what God's doing around the world. Uh, a second application, the first application is let's stay committed as a church to world evangelization. The second uh, application I'd have for you is, and this is for me too, don't give up on people who seem hopelessly lost. You know, the Dan's in your life. I know you, everyone's got somebody who you're just like, they are out there. There's no reaching them. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Keep reaching out to them. Keep loving them. Write them that email. Take the phone call once every six months when they call from out of state. Whoever that person is, just keep, keep faith that God can change them. Remember, your and my job is simply to love them, to pray, and to share the truth with them. That's our job. Our job is not to convert anybody because, frankly, you can't and I can't. We don't have that power. Our job is just to share the love of Christ and be faithful and let God do His work. And we just hold on to that faith that God can change anyone. And to our dying days, I need to keep praying for Dan that God can do something in his life. So that's the first application. 
As a church, let's stay committed to missions. Number two, don't lose hope on those who seem hopelessly lost. Keep praying and reaching out to them. And then the final application is, kind of like the second one, if you are one of those people who feels hopelessly lost, the good news is God can save anyone. God can change anyone. You haven't fouled up your life so badly that God's going to go. You can even now turn back to Christ. Maybe your whole life you've been walking away from God. You've turned your back on Him. You've lived your own way. You've walked away. You've walked away. And finally you come to a place in your life where going forward you see a bottomless pit, but you go, but I can't go back. It's so far to God. I'll tell you what, if you will just now turn around to Christ, you know where He'll be? Right here. He's not way back there. He's followed you. He's right close. He's next to you, ready to receive anyone who turns to Him. The great news of the Gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins and he can forgive any sinner and I know it's true because he did it for me. That's how I know. If he can forgive me, I feel like, man, he can forgive anybody. <laughs> you know, if you knew me, man, you'd say, this guy's hopeless. Because if, if you knew the kind of selfish person I was inside and so on and so forth, but Christ has forgiven me and he's changed my life. It's all him, it's not me. I don't know what you, you know, God can forgive uh, lies, he can forgive betrayals, Christ can forgive adultery. He can forgive promiscuity. He can forgive homosexuality. Christ can forgive unbelief. Christ can forgive arrogance. Christ can forgive materialism. His blood on the cross can wash away any sins that we've committed and any things that we've done displeasing to God. Jesus can do it. And you say, yeah, but I've been so long doing you know, my own thing. I've had my arms crossed toward God for so long. It's like my arms are frozen here. You know, even if I wanted to open up my arms, I don't think I could. It doesn't matter. Christ's arms are open. His arms are open on the cross, and He can save you and embrace you. One of my favorite stories of a hopeless case uh, from history is John Newton. I don't know if you know the story of John Newton. He lived in the 18th century. His mom brought him up, teaching him about the Bible, teaching him about Jesus. But at age seven, when he was seven years old, his mom died, and then his father raised him. The problem was his father was a sailor. Uh, and no offense to any of you Navy or sailor people out there, but, you know, sailor in sort of the negative sense, you know, very stern guy. And so he was sort of raised in the, the sailor's life, and his life became increasingly um, uh, dissolved and ruined, and he got into all the wrong things. He, he would get these great jobs on ships, then he would blow it because he would, you know, go AWOL and not tell his captain. And, you know, so he just kept getting in trouble, kept getting in trouble. Finally, at the lowest point of his life, when he reached the Nadir, he was a slave uh, runner. That's what he eventually became, a slave runner, uh, a slave trader. I mean, you can't think of anything lower than that, further from God than a slave trader in the 18th century. But on a ship, during a storm, God reached out and saved him. And he became a pastor. He became a, a theologian. In fact, he even wrote a song about his life. He wrote, it kind of describes his life, what he went through. Maybe you've heard of this song, Amazing Grace. That was John Newton. That's an autobiography. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And any of us who know Christ, man, that's our song. Because we know it's not us. We know there's nothing great about us, but Christ saved me. And so we sing that song with joy. And I just want you to know that anyone can sing that song if they put their faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I give you all the glory and praise for what you've done in my life. I just look at my life and to hear you say, Jeremy, my people, Jeremy, my handiwork, Jeremy, my inheritance, it just 
it blows me away. As I know, Lord, there's nothing in me that would attract you to me. Instead, Lord, it's just your free mercy and grace that saved me. And God, I know that even the good things today that you're accomplishing through me are a gift from you. There's nothing I'm generating myself. There's no secret that I've found, Lord. It's just the, the, the gospel, which is open to everybody. Lord God, I pray for all of us here that we would believe in your ability to save, that we would believe your word. Lord, I pray for us that we would be a church committed to world evangelization, that we, we wouldn't shrink back, that we would have hope, even for those places in the world that seem utterly close to the gospel. Help us to have hope. Lord, I pray for those of us here who have a Dan in our lives, that you would help us to stay faithful. Lord, these people have broken our hearts so many times. They've made promises and broken them so many times. But we can't trust them, it seems, sometimes. But Lord, we know that you can do anything. So we just keep praying for them to come to Christ, even as we have come to Christ through your grace. And Lord, finally, I pray for anyone here who feels like a Dan, who feels like they've just gone too far. Lord, let them know that there is salvation, there is forgiveness, that Christ can do anything. He can save anyone. Lord, we want to praise you now and we, uh, for what you've done in our lives. In the name of Christ, amen.